I'm Sean McDonald, you're listening to Blethered, and my guest is broadcast journalist Martin Geisler. We talk about Martin's illustrious career in broadcasting and his slightly unconventional early steps into the industry, and you'll hear about some of the standout stories that he's reported from directly, including the Boxing Day Tsunami and Robert Mugabe's Zimbabwe. We also discuss potential life after coronavirus lockdown, will governments relinquish their newly acquired powers and should we be concerned? Is it all about Orwellian, or are these measures and their continuation necessary for our health and safety? Will we give our thoughts on those questions? Martin's had an exceptionally interesting and varied career so far, but more importantly, he's a first-class guy. So I'm sure this is a conversation that you'll enjoy listening in on. If you do, feel free to share it, or maybe even leave a review. Blethered is an independent, grassroots production created by me and me only. So if you want to support that production, then the link to the Blether Patreon page is in the episode notes. All support ensures that I can bring even more episodes to you and all patrons receive bonus audio. And once lockdown lifts a wee bit, there's new shows, some video content and a lot more perks to be enjoyed. Thank you to the people who have supported so far. It's made a huge difference. And this week I want to say a big thank you to Ryan Fox. Cheers, mate. Me, you and Darren will be getting a night out and filming some mad videos when we're allowed out again. So thanks again for the support. So Martin Geisler is somebody who's worked in war zones and has been covering news for for quite a quite a few years now. You're used to temperamental, unpredictable environments. How are you getting on with the the whole coronavirus carry on, as I keep calling it? It's do you know what, Sean? It's really strange for me this this whole thing because my life uh, has been comparatively the way I go about my life has been comparatively unaffected because. <laughs> news broadcasters are rightly i think seen as key workers so i'm going to my work every day i'm going to, i'm doing a long day four days a week putting the news out for an hour a night reporting on this whole thing and and then coming home and and seeing my family at the weekend um the the strange thing about it is that you know i never i never thought i'd be involved in in a story that lasts for a month that dominates i mean we haven't reported apart from the salmon trial which for a couple of days you know, um, appeared on the agenda, still didn't dominate the agenda. Mm. Apart from that, we've reported on basically nothing else for a month. I never thought I'd see that ever. And I certainly never thought that story would be happening in the country where I live. It, it's just it's just absolutely extraordinary. And and as a story, we're just all trying to navigate our way through it as we go. It's a bit like fumbling around in the dark. And, and I think the good politicians are the ones who admit that, who say, look, we'll make mistakes, mm. we'll get things wrong. We're all, it's it's new for all of us. So, I mean, we're just trying to find out as much as we can and report it. Same as any story. Has it been enjoyable? And I use that word loosely, but from a professional aspect, there must be a degree of, I don't know, enjoyment in the sense that you're able to bring that information to people or to sort of decipher what's going on. I mean, how do you sort of see that from a professional standpoint? I mean, journalistically, it's been fascinating. And, and you know, it's always, you sign up to this industry to this business you know when you're young and 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 enthusiastic and hopefully i'm still enthusiastic but when, you, when you're young and full of kind of um uh big righteous ideals you you sign up because you want to provide a public service and and get important information to people at a time of need and that's exactly what we're doing but i don't think it's it's, it's not enjoyable but it's it's mind-blowing i mean it's fascinating there is not one aspect of our lives no matter how far you kind of 
investigate the labyrinth of this whole thing, everything is affected by it and will continue to be so for a long, long time. And what we're trying to look at now is not just what's happening and what's been happening and how it's happened. It's also where it's going to take us and what the implications are going to be and how long they're going to last. And that's the that's the really mind-blowing thing. And actually, some of that's quite profoundly troubling. Um, I mean, our children and their children, perhaps, are going to be are going to be impacted by this. The world they live in is not going to be the one they thought. There's something I've also thought about that I don't think is being discussed as much as obviously a lot of legislative powers were passed, um, you know, sort of emergency powers were handed to the police and the government in terms of whether it's surveillance or the capacity and right to be able to um, enforce certain laws to ensure that people aren't meeting up, blah, blah, blah. How how willing are these governments um, and bodies of power going to be to relinquish these new powers because it, it it casts some real aspersions over, you know, a will civil liber- civil liberties return to what they were. Have governments seized an opportunity in order to further something that they were probably already trying to do? W- where does that leave us? Depends how you trust your government, doesn't it? I mean, mm. you know, I, I I hope most people here would accept that. The government they live under, whether that's uh, Westminster or Holyrood, are doing this now because there are a series of measures that need to be put in place if we want to keep people safe. And there are checks and balances within those measures. I mean, the the Emergency Powers Act that the government passed, I think, has got a two-year lifespan, but it's got a check every six months in it. Uh, And it expires. I mean, it's got an expiry date. But if you're living Mm. in Hungary, right, and Viktor Orban's your prime minister, he's basically come in and said, right, I've got total and absolute control for the foreseeable future. uh, let's get on with it. And, and you know, if you're in opposition to him, that's going to be quite troubling. Um, mm. But, I, I mean, look, uh, something needed to be done. They needed to pass bars. Nobody objected to it in Parliament as well. I mean, that thing just sailed through. So I think mm. everybody of every political stripe seems to accept, uh, a party political stripe seems to accept it had to happen. And hopefully we've got an advanced and, and mature system of, of government with enough checks and balances in there to, to, to ensure that it doesn't kind of, uh, run away with itself. The I suppose this is a question I kind of want to ask that's somewhat related to what we're talking about, but also a bit detached. I suppose it comes down to this whole civil liberties, civil fucking hell. Why can I not say that? Civil liberties <laughs> aspect. Um, the the Westminster government have been trialing facial recognition in certain hotspots in London. I don't know if you've seen this, uh, and you've yeah. basically seen it's a way of preventative measures or whatever. But I think. And I probably should look this up, but I don't think it was wildly successful. I don't think they actually caught or recognized anybody. And I feel like that might be one of the things that they would then also use in terms of, and I suppose this is speculative from me because I'm kind of guessing, but based on how they've operated before, I can imagine them saying, no, no, we have to ramp this up because we have to be able to check people's temperatures or if whether people are ill or we have to be able to recognise people who maybe are supposed to be in lockdown or quarantine. It's a wee bit worrying. It's quite Orwellian. Um, there's the whole, the whole argument of if you've got nothing to worry about, then then why are you bothered? So how would you see that, the, the facial recognition types of things? Yeah, I mean, I th- we did a piece on this uh, on our programme on the Nine um, a couple of weeks ago. Actually, there's some areas in Glasgow that are, that are using facial recognition, CCTV technology, not the police, but it's being trialled by some community groups and so on. Um, so it's not as far away as you might think. It, it, it does sound very Orwellian. I, look, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know enough about the system that, that, that they're talking about bringing in in London. And I know there's an automatic uh, sense of distrust whenever this kind of thing comes up. 
Um, that whole kind of liberty argument. There's another argument, isn't there, with this this tracking system that that they want to bring in for our phones, which is one of the things that's going to help us lift the barrier and end the lockdown. Where where do you know do you know the one I'm talking about? It, it, you use the yeah. data that your phone collects to see whether or not. And if you if you develop the symptoms, you think you've got coronavirus, you let them know, and it mm-hmm. gets in touch with everybody who's been within two meters of you or close proximity to you for for more than ten minutes in the last however long and and that is a real they say a really essential tool in the kind of track and and isolate um battle against this virus so at the moment one would imagine they, they i think it's 60 percent of the public need to sign up for that for it to become effective and for them to use mm-hmm. it as a measure of, of of easing the restrictions um and one would imagine a lot of people will be signing up to that because they want to get their life back but but it's how they use that after it that's a different argument but you know if if you want to be cynical about the government yeah if they, if they want to bring this kind of stuff in now's a fantastic cloak under which to 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 smuggle it but you know I, who knows who who knows what we're going to come out to at the end of all this Mm. I watched the CEO of one of the companies or the company that provided the uh, the technology for the facial recognition thing, and he did put across what I would call a very balanced and reasonable argument in the sense of when things are used um, in moderation, you know, not complete tracking of people, whether it is people's information um, to see if they if you know with relation to the coronavirus or in general, and he was using the Manchester bombings and saying that those people were on watch lists and if they had p- potentially been recognised and it's something that could have been prevented. Um, it's probably a very a very nuanced debate, not one I would completely shut down um, if it can provide more safety, but there's still transparency and there's accountability, then it's quite interesting. I, I, with regards to the tracking, people have seen that in China using like the QR code and their sort of GPS data. Um, to, yeah. I, I would be up for it if it gets us back out. I'd be up for it. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the thing with the thing with the whole civil liberties thing is, I think the majority of people would reckon, look, I've done nothing to hide. I'm doing nothing wrong. I don't really care what you know about me. I think my phone probably has enough data on me to to work out virtually everything about my life anyway. And I'm I'm not naive enough to think that a lot of people don't have access to that. But yeah. you know, thankfully, in our advanced system of checks and balances there are people who are taking a, a far more kind of cynical view and saying and, and and really watching all of this and and, and warning us when it, they think it's going too far so i don't that's it if, if there's scrutiny um and and there's people as you say people doing those sort of checks and balances then then that'll work well getting more yeah. on to you in terms of growing up let's talk about early life before you decided you wanted to become a journalist like where did you grow up what was life like how, how bad were hearts then were they as bad as they are now or was it... <laughs> um yeah look there, there, there are two things right on as we go through this conversation as we as we kind of gallop our way through the next hour or however long we talk for there are two things that will strike you and the listeners i think about this firstly i've got an appalling memory so i will jump around uh, from place to place, I can't keep the thread of what I'm thinking for more than ten seconds, and, and at the end of it, I will kick myself because I'll forget to say half the stuff that, that that I should have said. But secondly, and more dominantly, that, that I, I am a lucky bugger. I mean, I'm the world's luckiest man. Every turn I have taken in life, it just seems to have worked out for me. And there's a bit of the old Gary Player thing in it, in that you know, the old uh, the more I practice, the luckier I get. I've I've kind of I've put in a shift work wise. But but no, life has been has been very good to me. So don't don't mistake me for somebody who takes that for granted. There, there's not a day I don't wake up and pinch myself and 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 realise uh, how lucky I am. And that and that, that started at the, you know early days of life. I grew up in a in a, in a really nice, comfortable uh, upbringing in a nice part of Edinburgh, just up the road from Tynecastle, just up around the corner from Gorgie. And um, I 
lovely, loving family. Uh, grew up only child. Um, there's a bit of a backstory to that, but with a lovely, loving mum and dad, went to a very good school. And I have to confess, one of my only regret, few regrets in life is kind of squandered a good education because I was far more interested in in being the class clown. And um, by hook or by crook, fell into the job that I do now. And and realized very early that it was a career that that was for me. I was kind of cut out for it, and it was one of the few things that I was I was actually going to be able to kind of crack. I thought, and um, and worked hard. I've worked hard for the last kind of thirty years, and and here I am. And in terms of starting, so did you go to university? Were you did you study journalism? No. Like, what was your your no. process? I kind of, I, I mean, I, look, I was, as I say, I was, uh, I wasn't really massively academic. I, I, was, I mean, I was all right. If I put my shoulder to the wheel and studied, I could pass exams. Mm-hmm. But I've got quite a short attention span. And if things don't interest me, it, you know, I'm not very good with things that bore me. So a lot of subjects at school, I just wasn't having. And I've got, I had a little bit of an issue with authority, which is quite good for, for, for a journalist, but not very good for a school child. Um, so, so all that was quite challenging. And at the end of school, ever, uh, quite a few of my pals were galloping off to university and they knew exactly what they wanted to do. And I didn't really, I kind of thought I wanted, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. Um, I've been talking about that from the age of about 13, 14, but I had no idea how you did it. And I had no idea how the kind of grown up world worked. So I found myself kind of um, cast adrift a little bit. I took a bit of time. I took a year out and I traveled for a bit and I came back and I needed to find a job. And by a series of very curious circumstances and coincidences, I managed to land a job in the press office at Edinburgh Zoo. I was the junior junior of two people in the press office at Edinburgh Zoo, which was absolutely amazing. And just, it was just, my life's been full of opportunities and chances that I've kind of identified as chances and grabbed and then worked at and, and another door seemed sliding doors, doors seemed to open. So I did that for a year and it was, um, it was just the most absolutely brilliant job. I was 18. I was full of kind of piss in the wind and the arrogance of youth and thought I was going to take on the world. Now, my job was twofold. It was to, you know, punt pictures of baby polar bears to the news desks and, and picture editors and newspapers. And this was the time of the start of the first Iraq war when, you know, feel-good factors were in short supply and people loved them. And everybody mm-hmm. loves pictures of baby polar bears. And write press releases and do all that and coordinate kind of press calls. But also there was a kind of harder side of it, which was uh, standing up to and answering, you know, zoo check and all these really good and strong and justified, um, justifiable and, and righteous animal rights organizations and, and putting a kind of conservation argument forward and just learning both sides of an argument, learning how to frame an argument, learning how to frame a story, doing all that. And at the end of it, I kind of did it for a year and thought, right, what's next? I should probably go to uni. And um, I was leaving and I, and I spoke to a few of the guys in the, in the media radio press conference for something. I can't remember what. And, and I kind of spoke to a few of the journalists and said, listen, I'm off. Thanks for everything. Goodbye. And the guy from Sky News turned around and said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm away for the summer to travel for a bit. And then I'm going to uni. I want to be a journalist at the end of it, but I've got a kind of convoluted path in my head as to how I might get there. And he said, well, listen, we've got a vacancy coming up in a, in a few months. Why don't you come and spend this? Don't travel. Come and spend the summer working with us. And, and we'll show you what to do for a couple of months. And then if you're any good, you can stay and we'll put you on air. And if you're not, then um, you can go to uni. Nothing lost. Off you go. And so that seemed like a great idea. So I ditched my, <laughs> ditched my mate who I was going to go traveling with and galloped off to work for them. And it turned out I was, you know, I kind of, well, I was useless at the start. But Sky had only just started. They were only a few months old. So nobody was watching. And it was a good place to make your mistakes. And they, they kind of took a chance on me. And uh, and there I was. I did that for a couple of years, and um, and then I got biffed because they had cutbacks, and I was one of the people who get cut. And then I just wrote to every 
I wrote to every newsroom in the country. I wrote to every regional newsroom for ITV and the BBC. So what's that? You know, they have probably 25 regions each. Wrote 50 letters to the heads of news and said, listen, here I am. Any chance? And a guy called Alistair Gracie, a wonderful guy who's not with us anymore, I'm afraid, at, uh, at Grampian TV, now STV North up in Aberdeen, said, look, we've got a maternity cover coming up. Went up there for six months, nine months, can't remember what. And then, and then that ended and I... Did the same thing again, wrote to everybody, ended up at Time Tees, then ended up at STV, and then, you know, onwards, worked at Sky Sports for a while, and then at ITN. And when you first started at Sky, obviously the company would have been in its infancy. What was it like? Because people, especially younger listeners, will be listening now and, and will just imagine Sky News and uh, Kay Burley and all that, and with this massive production. Was it, was it a lot smaller scale? Well, it was, I mean... It was buccaneering, right? Because it had a lot of money behind it, and it was, and it was a lot of people had gone there thinking they were the kind of enfant terrible, the kind of new kids on the block, and and they had mm. loads of attitude and swagger, and they brought in a lot of Australian guys who'd set up twenty four hour news channels, and this was the first ever twenty four hour news channel in Britain. Nobody had done anything like it. So they were kind of making stuff up as they went along, and they were they were kind of reinventing how Britain broadcasts and, and digests news. And there were a lot of people who were really excited and carried away by the thing, and a lot of people with really good ideas. And there was nobody there to say, we don't do it like that. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, now we do because we're, we're reinventing the rules. But bear in mind, I'd never done any of this before. So not only was it a new um, way of working for everybody who was on there, this was a completely new industry to me. I was wide-eyed, saucer-eyed with kind of uh, – excitement about the whole thing um so uh, it was it was a kind of vertical learning curve for me and genuinely i mean you know people talk about imposter syndrome i i was a total imposter i had no i I had no right to be there at all none no redeeming features no qualifications but i just got a chance and i I just kept going and and would work every hour god sent and just learn and learn and and watch everything around me and take in as much inspiration as I could and, and just keep going. I identify what I was rubbish at and just try with baby steps to make it better. I mean, starting from ground zero. Do you think then going in, as you say, as the imposter, but realizing, wait, I can do things. And as the company was sort of reinventing the wheel, so to speak, have you carried that on in your career? Because anyone, let's just say if you had started off at the, the BBC in London or BBC Scotland and you're working within those parameters, you know, those boundaries are quite clearly set. It's such a sort of developmental stage for you. You could have just been like, this is how it's done and we do not overstep the mark, whereas you've had quite the opposite experience in your initial oh, undertakings. Totally. Do you know, the biggest thing for me, right, the, 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 one of the, the secrets of whatever success I've had is that I've never really, until relatively recently, uh, spent a lot of time in a newsroom. I did in a couple of regional newsrooms where I was kind of young and kind of full of myself and enthusiastic and probably got away with stuff and I was quite junior but but later on I was in bureaus when I was at STV I was in the Edinburgh bureau for most of the time at Sky when I didn't really didn't know anything I was in the Scotland bureau I didn't I wasn't sitting in front of the bosses and I wasn't sitting competing with other reporters of my same age and stature um, you know trying to get the big story off them I had a geographical patch to cover so if something happened in Scotland I was doing it there was no question about it it wasn't a scrap and then even at ITN, I was Scotland correspondent, then I was Africa correspondent, then I was Europe correspondent. I was away from the desk. Genuinely, and I'm fully aware of this, certainly in the early stages of my career, if I'd been in London in a big newsroom, I would never have got through because I wasn't as mm-hmm. qualified as the other people. And I was able to kind of hide away in my little bureau and mask my inadequacies and try and hide them. 
and concentrate and focus on the stuff that I was good at. And, and you know, I became, I guess, a half-decent writer. I could certainly kind of knock out a script reasonably quickly. And I got to know how pictures work. But mercifully, I worked with really talented and patient uh, and kind camera operators and technicians who who helped me with the stuff that I was good at and covered for me and the stuff that I wasn't so good at until I got better and gave me a leg up. So I owe them a lot. And I also genuinely owe a lot to the fact that I was I was away from base so people couldn't actually work out who I really was. <laughs> the I was just about to ask you something. Oh, yeah, so how much... So you've obviously went in there and you're, you're working on the experience aspect and you're, you're saying working every hour that God sends and just trying to pick up as much as you can. How much of doing what you do is innate and how much can be learned? Because I'd imagine there may be people you've met who had all the gear and the idea, let's say, they've, they've got the qualifications, they've had the experience, but they maybe just don't have it. Is it something that's innate? Is it something that you can learn? Is it something you can develop? It depends who you are. I mean, I've, I've not had a day's, I've genuinely not really had a day's training in my life. I didn't go to uni to do any of this. I've never, the places I've worked haven't sent me on any, the BBC's very big on, on, on the job training. Uh, but the places I worked in the, in the, in the eras in which I worked, I mean, it was sink or swim. So uh, some of it you can't teach. There's, I mean, you're either, you're either all right with a camera or you're not, I think. You're, mm-hmm. either, you're either extrovert or you're not. And, and you know, if you're extrovert, you like a camera, you work out kind of how to project yourself through that lens into somebody's living room. That's a kind of God-given gift for a lot of people. If you're an introvert mm-hmm. and you don't like doing it and you don't like attention, then then you're probably in the wrong gig if you want to make it in television news. Um, equally, the writing stuff, I've spent, and I still do, watch the people in the industry, the reporters who I admire, and just tuck away in the back of my mind. Little, there might be a little piece of wordplay, a little trick they've done with their script, and a nice piece of phrasing. As one of my colleagues, Bill Neely, who's fantastic, he's now the chief global correspondent for NBC in the States. I mean, literally, there's kind of no bigger yes. job in the world of journalism. Um, Bill keeps a, a, a notepad right in his pocket, a tiny little notepad everywhere he goes. And, and he'll just, when he hears a nice kind of phrase or reads a nice little piece of writing, a little trick in a sentence, he'll note it down. And it could be, you know, he might be reading the in-flight magazine on a plane and it might be a piece about Barbados and he'll be able to use something or have that, bring that back in a piece he's writing from a war zone. I don't know, but it's just, it's just always watching for clever people doing clever things, tucking mm-hmm. them away, remembering them, working out in your head what was good about that and then producing that through your own work or, or, or adapting that. That's the word I'm looking for, adapting that to your own work in a situation you might be in. Yes, every day is a school day. It's the old cliche, isn't it? You should always be learning and always be watching. You've never made it. You never know everything. Yeah, so you never made it. You, you've never. Yeah, every day is a school day. You, you should always. You should always be learning. Uh, you've anybody who thinks they've made it and they've cracked it and they've kind of got as far as they're going to. They know everything about their line of work. Is is either a fool or, uh, yeah, not worth listening to. Ah, uh, it's like that old phrase: the more I learn, the the more I realise, you know, I know nothing. Or oh, the clever I become, yeah. I realise I know absolutely nothing. Complacency exactly. sets in. Um, exactly. how, so you've been doing the sort of news aspect, but then the, the move to Sky Sports, the Scotland correspondent, came about in 98. How did that come about? Was that just a, a natural transition, like somebody looking for somebody to come in and you fit the bill? No, that, yeah, that was one of a couple of moments in my career where somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, you fancy a job? And it never, it never occurred to me to apply for that job. And I thought, you know what, if I don't take this, somebody else will do it and it might be good mm-hmm. fun. So I'm not having that. 
Um, so yeah, this, that story begins. I was so I worked at STV. I took over. Stephen Jardin had gone uh, from STV. He was a reporter in Edinburgh and sometime presenter, and he went down to GMTV as it was at the time. Uh, and so there was a vacancy. So the head of STV phoned me up. I was working at Time Tees at the time. Called me up and said, "Listen, I've seen your your showreel. Do you fancy coming up? There's a vacancy in Edinburgh." And Edinburgh was home, and my my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. Uh, lived up here and it was absolutely the perfect thing. Go and poke around the city that you grew up in and find out how it works and irritate yeah. people and do all that. And that was absolutely, definitely, not not for a second am I letting that one slip. So I came up and I would go through occasionally because part of Stephen's job was to present. So I found myself aged 23, 22, I joined, 23, sitting in the STV Glasgow newsroom in Cowcaddens at a desk alongside Kirsty Young, Carol Smiley, Viv Lumsden, Shireen Nanjiani. I mean, all the people I'd kind of, people I'd grown up watching and people who went on to do great things. Uh, Kay Adams was there. Um, Jim White. I uh, know Jim Delham was doing the sport. Jim White had just left to do Scott Sport. But it was a proper, I mean, this was, it was a proper newsroom. It was really, really good. And then I, right. I would present the news. I spent my 21st, my 20, sorry, my 21st, my 23rd birthday uh, presenting Scotland Today with Kurt, alongside Kirsty Young. I mean, just absolutely ridiculous situation to find yourself in anyway i'm digressing <laughs> the boss well, the boss walked through one day and saw me reading the back page of the daily record and he sat down at the desk and he was talking the boss was he was a good lad but it was you know this is 1994 hard hard kind of news editor and he would occasionally walk through kind of perch on your desk and say look up look at all these envelopes you know these are do you know what these are no i don't scott i don't know what they are these are applications for your job why should i not give any of these people your job that they'd be cheaper and you know what? Some of them will be better. Why should I not do that? And he's well, you know, Scott, I, I, I think I'm doing all right. And, uh, you know, give me a chance and uh, keep the faith. I'll be better tomorrow and all that. I kept you right in your toes. Anyway, one day he said, look, um, you're a football fan. And I said, yeah, 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 I'm a big football fan. Love it. Love it. It's a you know, Saturday afternoon passion. And he said, well, Jim, Jim Delahunt's away off on holiday uh, over the summer. Do you fancy filling in for a bit? So I did, and I kind of that became my thing. So when Jim went on holiday, I was a standard, and I absolutely mm. loved it. I mean, I was I was all right at it as well. I just I was I made a nuisance of myself. I was not afraid to badger, pester agents or managers. And these that was in the day when you could phone, you know, Tommy Burns at Celtic. You had the number for his mm -hmm. desk, and he'd pick up the phone and you just ask him questions straight away. No, not going through a receptionist, nothing. Um, and it was just a dream come true, and I did it with great enthusiasm. But because I guess it was a it was an occasional thing, it was a week here and there. Uh, and it was my kind of holiday at work. Um, and I was quite starry-eyed about the whole thing at the time as well. It was brilliant. Anyway, uh, uh, the Sky Sports started up. Sky bought the rights to Scottish, to, the, to Scottish football, and they were opening this new channel, Sky Sports News, and they were setting up an operation in Scotland, and I got a call. I was away on holiday uh, with my wife, and I got a call from the boss saying, listen, we're setting this up. We need a, a reporter up here. Do you fancy the job? And, the, you know, the money was better and I thought it was okay at the job. And as I say, uh, if I didn't take it, I knew a couple of other people who they would have offered it to and I wasn't mm -hmm. having them doing it. So I uh, I said, yeah, I'm in. So off I went and it was it was um, started in July 98. Hearts had just won the cup for the first time in 54 years. Uh, all was good with the world. And I reported for duty at an office in Glasgow where there were two young uh, producers who both of them are brilliant and both of them are still good mates and then the on-screen team was me jim white charlie nicholas and uh, davy proven and i had a year of undiluted childish 
hilarity. It was just brilliant and great fun. And we were we were you know, taken on the world. It was a big budget. Sky Sports had just bought Scottish football, so we were doing live games all the time. Don't you unusually uh, when because they had the rights. If you phoned the club and said we want to come and interview somebody, they generally said, "Yeah, all right. Uh, what mm-hmm. time?" Rather than the default kind of, "No, why should we?" So it was brilliant. Uh, so I did that for a year, and then season two came along, and it occurred to me that it was going to be the same as the previous season, and then so was every other season after that, really, and nice. just kind of you know changed the names. And it, to be honest, my, I would read the newspaper from back to front because my passion's football, but my heart's in news. So I uh, halfway through the next season, I went back to I went back to STV and um, kind of licking my wounds and wondering what I was going to do next. And then um, then a call came from ITN saying they needed somebody to fill in because their Scotland correspondent had left and they, they wanted somebody to be a stopgap until they appointed a full-time person. And again, I just thought, you know what? This is a chance. I'm having that. And when the interviews come along, I'm going to get the job. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's what happened. And then that's obviously follows on to a, a large bulk of the next part of your career. You were involved, obviously, you know, working in Scotland and covering what was happening here, but some major, major incidents uh, and occurrences throughout the world. I mean, what are the standout the standouts for you that you went to report on, either at home or abroad? Yeah, well, so I joined ITN in 2002, in February 2002. So within a year, by January 2003, we were we were looking at uh, war starting, Second Gulf War starting. And I found myself, for whatever reason, still can't quite work out why. They sent me to Kuwait uh, with a cameraman, but my job was... For it's probably been there for a month, maybe a wee bit more, and uh, there's almost certainly going to be a war. There's a lot of troops building up, British and American troops building up over there. So we want you to go over and be our kind of eyes and ears, do some reporting, but also go to all the briefings and work out roughly what the strategy might be, work out where our rivals are going to be putting reporters, and just send information back. So you know, a year previously, I'd been. Re- working for the STV newsroom, doing very regional stories. And here I am as the eyes and ears of a kind of network in the Gulf on the eve of war. Mm. And um, again, pinching myself and, and kind of helping in a very loose and junior way, helping the bosses back home kind of come up with a strategy as how we how, how we cover this thing. So it all moved very fast anyway. And it, it, that was that was fascinating and slightly overwhelming. But then they started sending out the big teams, the guys who were going to go in and embed with the army units. And, and this is where kind of everything changed for me, really, in, in, in a whole load of ways. And a, a lot of correspondents came out and just kind of swept through Kuwait and, uh, and went off to join their units and get ready for, for the invasion. But there was a guy who I was attached to, who I was going to shadow, uh, Terry Lloyd, who was a kind of hero reporter of mine growing up. And, and my job was to, was to sit and work with Terry in Kuwait until he disappeared up to the border. But Terry wasn't going to... Was, wasn't going to deploy with one of the, the army units. He was going to be what they call the unilateral report. So he was going to go in after the tanks, but with a little team on his own and just work independently and have independent eyes on, on the battlefield. And so he and I had long conversations. But I'd never done anything like this. I'd never seen a war zone. I didn't know what to expect. So he was very kind of paternal to me and we, we became quite kind of pally. And I, my job was to go in the day after Terry and pick up the stories that he didn't have the time to to cover. So if he'd been through a village where there was all sorts going on, but he had to keep moving with the front line, mm-hmm. I would get the call and I'd go and sweep up the story in that village. Anyway, um, you, you may well remember or know what's coming next, but but the, the fences, the tanks went through the 
across the border. The fences came down. Terry went in, and the next morning, he and his cameraman Fred Nirak and a driver who I'd, I'd kind of identified and, and kind of hired alongside Terry Hussein Osman uh, were killed in a firefight, and uh, they were just wrong place, wrong time, misunderstanding, bad information. And there were four of them in two vehicles, and three of them didn't make it back. And and the last guy, Daniel de Moustier, uh, cameraman, um, did miraculously survive that, mercifully survive that, went on to become a very, very dear friend of mine and a good colleague, cameraman I worked with full-time for a couple of years. And he came back and he arrived in, in Kuwait and in Kuwait City and kind of knocked on my door and told me what had happened, and, and everything kind of changed from from that moment on. And ITN had, had, in 50 years had never lost anybody in combat going through covering, you know, Vietnam, everything, and uh, and no, never lost a soul. And there in, in five awful minutes, they lost three employees. So, yeah, that was that was a really depressing and, and difficult and dark awakening to the realities of what that kind of, you know, that sort of life can entail, and that part of the job can entail, because people went into into wars in the past. Journalists went into wars, I think, in the past when battlefields were traditional battlefields, and and wars weren't fought with against you know enemies you couldn't see, and the kidnapping mm-hmm. wasn't such a big issue. They went into battlefields with, I guess, a sense of protective bubble around themselves, of kind of this invisible shield. We're journalists, we're, we're the media. Stuff doesn't happen to us. Well, you know what? It it, it does, and it, and unfortunately, it did that day. I've often wondered that when I've seen people going through war zones with a helmet on and a, a vest over their bullet or their, their um, protective vest or whatever that says press or which says journalist or whatever. And I think what I always wondered, I thought, what is it that makes you think that is such a protective bubble? Because when, when all is said and done and when war is in, in full, full flight, I don't really think anybody cares that it says journalists. That was how I sort of perceived it. What was the fallout? What were the repercussions of those those deaths? Because that's got to have a massive, <sighs> massive impact in so many things, operational, um, people's attitudes, people's enthusiasm. I mean, how was it? Yeah. Oh, I mean, the repercussions were many. Uh, within our organisation, most of us, I mean, I'd only been there for a year. There were many of the, most of my colleagues had lost a dear, dear friend. I'd only known Terry a few weeks. I was working with guys who'd known him 20 years. Um, so so there was a lot of soul searching to be done within our organization. Um, there was a lot of talk about how we continued to cover the war. But, you know, Terry, more than anybody else, would have, and, and Fred, would have would have said, listen, don't... <laughs> don't compromise anything because of us. He would have been the first guy to say, let's get on and do it properly. So yeah. there was that, but then there was an inquest into his death. And then you've got the difficult situation of a coroner um, trying to understand how television news works and, and trying to apply, you know, the laws of health and safety to the realities of, of journalistically covering mm-hmm. a, a conflict. And and the two don't really marry very happily. Um, and there were these kind of moments of, of, perhaps feigned astonishment in the courtroom. Hi, you did this and you asked him to go where and what happened? And well, that's just how it works. I mean, how do you mm-hmm. think the news that you watch in the evening gets on your telly? Because people do stuff that is dangerous because that's what war is like. So yeah, it was difficult. The whole thing was was just incredibly personally, professionally, profoundly difficult in every way. It was awful. It was an awful chapter, but you know. That, that sounds to me like something that would, something that would require a bit of professional assistance in the form of counselling or something like that. Do you get offered that aftercare? Was that just not considered at that point? 
Yeah, I can't remember. You know, I think I mean I'm, I'm presuming we did, um, but but yeah, there was a thought when when all that had happened, and then it was still you know we're going to cross the border, we're going to go in, we're going to cover this thing, and I I'd never done anything, I didn't know what to expect, didn't didn't know anything about it. There was a, a couple of wobbles I had where I thought, you know what, maybe I should just go home. I I should say by the way, I had a my son was nine months. My daughter was three at the time. I think my son was nine months old. So I had a wife and two babies back home to to think about, and I just thought. Do I just chuck this and go back because I'm I was in bits, but but actually no, just thought. And I spoke to a couple of, of colleagues about it, and they said, yeah, actually, we do what you think's right, but you will regret that later because this is you know this is what you want to do, and you've had a, you've got a massive opportunity to just dust yourself down, get up, and get in there and do it. And I did, and 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 I don't regret it. But but you're right. I mean, that whole thing is we live in a different era now. There'll be far more focus on um, aftercare now 17 years on than than there was then but i'm certainly not criticizing itn my employers at the time i'm sure they they, they were offering staff support but there's, there's a there's a bravado in journalism it certainly was back then it's, it's less so now that that you know you just get back in the saddle and, and and crack on because it's 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 what you do i had a really hard time actually a harder time a few months after that, I was in Baghdad for for a month. I went to cover in Baghdad in August because none of the big correspondents would have been wanted to go in August because it's about fifty degrees, and they were asking for for um, volunteers to to go out there. And my hand was first in the air. I thought it was a great opportunity. And Saddam was still on the run, and it was a lot happening. It was really hot in every sense. It was a hot story, and it was a hot place. And and. Um, I kind of got in there and I was I was on my own. Well, me and a and a and a, um, a cameraman and there was a security guy with us. And that was a hard month. The first morning I was there, the Jordanian embassy was bombed, and it was Al Qaeda. Their first it was their first ever attack in Iraq. And um, we went there and there was an it was an appalling scene. And I saw stuff there that I won't trouble you with just now, but I'd never seen anything like it in my life. And and then a few a couple of weeks after that, the UN compound was blown up by a truck bomb. And we happened to be not far away in a street in Baghdad. We heard and felt the blast and went straight there. And again, a really gruesome kind of scene uh, being played out on our arrival. And I found that intensely difficult that whole month um, because Baghdad was was had gone from being a slightly unstable city to a place where really bad stuff was happening, and we were staying in the press hotel, and it was fairly, it was not too paranoid to think that was going to be a fairly immediate target, and I couldn't wait to get out of there. And I think when I came home from that, I actually probably was for the the only time in my career I probably did have a bit of um, what you would now quite easily identify as PTSD. I went through a kind of, you know, I had the whole all the classic symptoms. But again, ITN, I'm sure, would have said, I didn't raise my hand and say, I need some help. I just thought I'll keep my head down and go on holiday and and, and just kind of, it'll, it'll sort itself out. Um, knowing, if I'd known then what I know now about that whole thing, I would, or, yeah. and, and how your mind works, I would probably have treated it a bit differently. The world was a far different place then. We've obviously come on leaps mm. and bounds. Um, obviously, you're saying that you just you just had children, and you're seeing a lot of destruction and just a lot of horrendous things. Does it become difficult to to stave off cynicism about how the world operates and whether goodness really exists, and and all that whole inner monologue and debate? Because these things must impact you unbelievably. So, um, and while we're all here in, in comfort and ignorance, you're sort of in the midst of, of some mental stuff. And I think that also applies to what you would have seen in Zimbabwe. You covered the tsunami, um, Hurricane Katrina, yeah. just 
does it does it make you think the world is absolutely shit, or do you do you have to consciously shift yourself away from that? No, because uh, firstly, I don't want to not be cynical. I think if you stop being cynical, you lose part of your um, your kind of journalistic toolkit. Um, yeah. We should be cynical. We should we should. We should hope for the best in people and expect the worst um, and identify it when we see it and call it out. Um, and also, do you know, while people can do appalling, let's use Zimbabwe is a really good example of that because I spent a lot of time in there and it was it was a fascinating place. Um, it's still my favourite country in the world. The people there are still my favourite people. I saw stuff being meted out. I mean, I saw a government, a president, whose job it was to look after his population, meeting out the most appalling torture upon them. And and while that is profoundly depressing, the way that the people dealt with it and the spirit of that population was absolutely uplifting. So as long as you've got both sides of the seesaw, you can find a balance. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was uh, people, people by and large, what I've found, right? I've been all around the world, met all sorts of folk. I've been incredibly lucky. People by and large are good. Unfortunately, uh, the people who get find their way to, to, to positions of authority and, and, and um, offices of, of, of power too often are not good. And that that has consequences. But by and large, the folk beneath, the folk, the folk on ground, the people on the factory floor, Humans are, are good people. We're, we're all right as a species. Individually, some of us are not, are rotters. And it's the rotters who tend to want to get to the top. It puts me in mind of that phrase, you know, the best people are the people who are most suited or most, um, yeah, most suitable for power are the people who have to be dragged there kicking and screaming. You should be sort of questioning of people who are very calculated and they're adamant that they would like to get to that position of power because then it's like well why why do you want that and which way are you are you going to lead let's talk about your time in yeah. Zimbabwe how, how how I mean you you tell me how you how you would describe it yeah I mean Zimbabwe it was it's just the most extraordinary country and it was the most extraordinary story I, I um I, I first went there when we went out to fight Teresa my wife and I went out to look for houses when I got the Africa job we went out to Johannesburg my cameraman was from Zimbabwe and, and he didn't tell me in advance but the day we arrived he said listen just Teresa can go out and look at the houses you've got all that you know she's going to be the boss anyway isn't she <laughs> so um why don't you come with me I've got I've got a couple of tickets we're flying up to Harare tomorrow and we'll go and find a story so I thought, well, it's no time like the present. Let's go and have a look at this place. And it's kind of an element of apprehension about it because, you know, I knew enough about it to know that you weren't meant to be in there and the consequences of getting caught as a foreign journalist were, you know, they were going to be unpleasant. Mm -hmm. But up we went. And and just from that moment, from the moment I got off the plane, the kind of the, the people, the atmosphere in the country, it was obviously a fantastic story, although it descended into total chaos a couple of years later. The story at the time was just the economy. The economy was going through hyperinflation. We did a story that day. We were in a supermarket, and I found that there was a, an egg cost a million Zimbabwean dollars. So I phoned the news desk and said, right, I've got a cracking story tonight. The million-dollar egg, that's what Zimbabwe's become. So we did that, and from then on, there was just a, I just made so many friends up there, met so many people, got under the skin of the country, and other people couldn't get in, other journalists couldn't get in, but because, for two reasons, firstly, my cameraman was from there and, and just a genius, and had a really good network of, of, of friends up there and safe houses we could stay in and all that, we just kind of just fronted it up, just flew straight into Harare. I think I said I was an electrical engineer or something on the visa form, and in we went and, and sailed through. And the other great advantage we had over, our, certainly our opposition at Sky and the BBC, was that their channels were broadcast in Zimbabwe, so they knew what the correspondence looked like. 
And I didn't really know who I was. So I just went in and filled our boots. And um, and, and it, it was just, I was really proud, actually, of, of the way we, we covered that and the way we stuck with that story throughout throughout my four years. I was up there probably, I don't know, a week, a month for, for four years. Um, and we got some really powerful stuff out of there and told the story that nobody else was telling about an appalling dictator and 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 the oppression that he was meeting out to the most wonderful population, far too tolerant a population. A real horrible bastard. And how this is obviously a, a question which will have probably hours worth of answers, but how did he manage to, to stay in power for so long if the people, I'd imagine, were so completely against him? Well, do you know, I think the thing with Mugabe was, right, that he didn't want to stay in power for all that time. Mm -hmm. I think he would probably have walked away, but there were two things. Firstly, the International Criminal Court in The Hague couldn't indict or wouldn't indict a sitting president, although they have now indicted, um, I think, Omar al-Bashir of Sudan mm -hmm. for what happened in Darfur. But but at the time, I think he thought, if I'm in power, I'm not going to jail. Mm -hmm. And And secondly, the generals who had been around him since he took power in 1980 had been complicit. I mean, they had kind of blood on their hands as well. Um, you know, there was a genocide in the east of the country in the very early 80s, not long after he came into power. And, and in fact, there's, there are you know questions over some of the people who are still in positions of power over in Zimbabwe now as to their involvement. But I think they thought if Mugabe had just disappeared, say he just packed up and flown off to Dubai or some sanctuary mm -hmm. to see out his days, they would have been collared. They thought they would have been collared if he'd gone, if there was a big investigation into what had been happening and all the stones were unturned as to what the Mugabe regime had done. So I think they were turning on him and saying, listen, old man, you're not going anywhere. You're staying in the presidency mm. for keeps because it keeps us all safe. But, um, I mean, also, when the history of Zimbabwe is written, you, you, you can't forget the fact that for a long time, it was a brilliant country. I mean, I first went there in 92 and... It had the highest literacy rates in Africa. Mm. The uh, it was the, the old cliche, and it was true. It was the breadbasket of Southern Africa. Zimbabwe was manufacturing and providing loads and loads of the food that kept South Africa fed. Mm -hmm. um, but at some point, he flipped. He flipped because he saw people who he thought should be loyal to him supporting the opposition, and he just decided, right, you want a fight. I'll give you a fight and I'm going to throw everything at it, everything in my weaponry. And if it means destroying the country, so be it. I'm having you. And so he went to war with the white farmers there. The agriculture sector was was ripped apart. And before you know it, people are starving in the streets. I remember watching that in the news and not understanding what was going on and what the reasons were. But it was like white farmers being ripped from their homes. And the was it the farms just being given to what you would call more indigenous citizens? Yeah, to Mugabe's. To Mugabe's. Well, he called them the war veterans. I had a couple of entanglements with the war veterans, and I promise you, the the, the Rhodesian Bush War was was in the late seventies, and most of his war veterans were not born mm -hmm. when when that was happening. They were young guys who were incredibly loyal to him. They were a, a group of they were a militia. They were thugs who were doing his bidding and burning down farms and whatever. But my my recollection of that story, and forgive me if this isn't entirely uh, intact, is that. Or a version, a good, a, a plausible version I'd heard is that Mugabe had left the country uh, to go wherever. He used to go abroad for treatment for, I think he had, um, he had a cancer of some kind, like colonic cancer. Anyway, he came back, and the day he came back, he saw a picture in the newspaper of a, a big presentation check being given by a group of farmers to the MDC, the opposition party, and I think he had thought, look, you lot 
have got to watch yourselves. You know, you can you can have whatever political thoughts you want, but at the moment, it's a business arrangement. You're staying here in this country on my terms. You're making it work. It works for all of us. Don't rock the boat mm-hmm. and don't give that lot money. And my understanding is that's uh, it was that that moment that he thought, right, I'm having this lot. They're getting, I'm kicking them out. And um, slowly but surely, their farms were just completely repossessed. They were taken by his war veterans and handed out, which would have been, I mean, if they were talking about a land redistribution from white people to black people, that's a different argument. That's taking back the land and giving it to the people who were indigenously there. It's, you can have a, whatever opinion you want about that argument, but there's a, South Africa is going through that conversation just now. But he didn't. He gave it to his friends. There were government ministers who would have seven or eight farms and didn't farm them. They just let the crops rot in the fields. So it doesn't take too many har- failed harvests to, to cause a country to starve. And whenever there was any opposition and the opposition took to the streets, you, you know, you'd beat them. There were torture camps. There was, I mean, the whole, it was the full set of, of you know, bad dictatorship tactics going on there. He didn't miss. The fragility and delicacy of a dictator's ego, fucking hell. In terms of, I wanted to ask about the um, your coverage for the tsunami. Obviously, an absolutely horrendous um, experience as well. How how much of the epicenter of that were you involved in? In terms of reporting it. Um, I'll start from the beginning of the tsunami story. I, I woke up on Boxing Day in, what was it, 2004, and, and heard on the news that there had been this earthquake and there was a tsunami warning and there was going to be a problem. And I went shopping with my wife, and we were in Jenner's on Princess Street, the first day of the sales, Boxing Day sales. <laughs> and, I, I mean, that is, is, that's hell, right? As far as I'm concerned, there's nowhere on earth I would like to be less. You're watching old ladies <laughs> squabble over half-priced sets of handkerchiefs. And my phone rang. And it was the boss, it was the foreign editor, and he said, listen, mate, there's been this tsunami, you're probably aware of it. There's a flight going out to the Maldives from Manchester in about five hours' time. Can you be on it? And I, said, I looked around myself and said, yes, yes, I can. <laughs> uh, Maldives, you say. So, I mean, unfortunately, there was, the Maldives was uh, taking an absolute whack. And anyway, there was this flight, Thomas Cook, I think it was, or one of, these, one of the, the package companies was sending an empty flight out to pick up all of its stranded... Mm. Holidaymakers. So me and a, col- a couple of colleagues um, got on board this empty plane and flew out to the Maldives and got dropped off. And so began this kind of extraordinary well, five, or five or six weeks I was away for. Um, around We started in the Maldives only for a day, and then we were in Sri Lanka. Then we went to India, and then we went down to the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, which are this little archipelago of islands in the Bay of Bengal, which were actually closer to the epicenter of it than Banda Aceh was, and they'd been absolutely battered. And I mean, you know, it was, it was, it was awful, but, but were, we were quite restricted in our movements. So while my colleagues in Indonesia were seeing the real human impact, we were kind of trying to get as close as we could to the, the geographical epicenter. And it's weird, the Andaman and Nicobar Islands are quite strange. There are, there are tribes in there that you're not allowed, you, know, you can't visit their islands because... Outside, it's a bit like the tribes in the Amazon. Outsiders haven't been there before, and you, you could take in a common cold, and it could wipe them all out. That kind of thing. So it was that. That was my experience. To be honest, was more of a kind of wide-eyed um, uh, or our eye-opening introduction to to remote parts of the world uh, than than the kind of human horror that that a lot of my my colleagues and friends were were witnessing. I'm I'm pleased to say I was very fortunate in that respect. That's not to say that, that the Andaman Islands didn't have their share of of um, of, of misery, but but there's actually some a lot of the stories we were telling over there. There was a story of a girl who got swept out to sea 
and she managed to, to cling onto a door and and she lay on this door for you know days and days and eventually there was sea snakes swimming around there and everything and eventually washed back up on a beach on another island but recognized a member of her you know distant member of her family who helped her although there was it was more uplifting stories mm. than I seem to find myself covering there once again like extraordinary rather than luck <laughs> than um than than tales of tales of total misery the other story I, I still don't know whether it's true i like to tell it because i think it's true we were in in um Sri Lanka and Colombo waiting to fly to to India, and we were we were in the at the airport bar just waiting for our flight. And there's a couple of people, a guy and a girl, um, playing pool. And uh, the girl had a a, a a cast on her wrist. And I said, "What up to you?" And she said, uh, "Oh, the tsunami. We were in this kind of beach hut thing, and I was just kind of getting my stuff together in the morning, and, and the tsunami came in, and, and it." It came in and it hit the hut and, and, and everything got rocked about and my, my wardrobe fell over and it fell on me and it kind of broke my arm, but I, the, the water didn't all get in. So it wasn't a, a concern about drowning. I was trying to save my stuff. And I said, wow, that's amazing. And I turned to her boyfriend and said, what about you? He said, I was surfing. <laughs> I said, what? He said, yeah, I was, uh, I was surfing. I, uh, and I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, the water went out and I went out with it. And the next thing I knew I was in the middle of the town. So he he told, he told a plausible story, but I'm not sure. I don't know. I think I don't know. I think I mean, I'm all that gullible. But he swore to me. He swore to me that was true. And I've heard other people tell similar tales. Bloody hell! Um, you with I suppose I wanted to touch on as well. We are Zimbabwe coverage. You were nominated for various awards. What is the what is what yeah. is the basis for that? Because. Is that because you're uh, the way in which you're uncovering it, or is it because you're uncovering things that people otherwise hadn't been aware of? As you say, you weren't as restricted as more internally, uh, more internal-based reports. Well, a bit of everything. I mean, a lot of that was down to our boss, Deborah Turness, who uh, was the editor of ITV News at the time, and she decided, and I, I can't take total credit for, <clears throat> for that recognition at all, she decided that we were going to do a week of coverage, that Zimbabwe was kind of, we were covering it well, but it was a little bit piecemeal. We'd do a story here and there. Uh, it was great for me because whenever I phoned and said, we're going into Zimbabwe, we've been in, we've spent a week in there, I've got a story, it's going to be a bit of a blockbuster. They wouldn't even ask what it was. They'd just say, right, it's the lead story tonight on News at mm-hmm. 10. So they, they, they had a massive investment in the story. We kind of decided we were going to make it ours. And she then thought, right, I'm fed up of having a story every other kind of Tuesday. I, I want to do a week. Let's take a breath and go and really kind of harvest some good stuff and get five good pieces and do a week's coverage. She sent Mark Austin out. So Mark and I both went in and we, we worked on five different angles and we kept going until the stories were all complete. And then we presented the news, 6.30 news and news at 10 for a week from the banks of the Limpopo River, right on the border uh, of South Africa and Zimbabwe. And we were, we were able to give a really comprehensive week-long um, kind of blockbuster sense of, of this kind of intense coverage to take people across the border with it into that story and immerse them in it in a way that people hadn't done in the past. So I think the recognition, the awards and the nominations came from from our investment in the story as much as the way as much as the stories we were telling. The fact that we had decided to to, to make it front and center, and also to be honest, I mean, it was once you're in there, it's it's. The story was so compelling; it, it was it was easy to find people with with extraordinary stories to tell. So, after obviously quite a chunk of of 
doing all that and telling these stories and these awards, you then find yourself back in. Is it the U- were you in the UK or were you based across Europe because you are working as European correspondent? No, I was in Europe. I was, I was, yeah, I was Europe correspondent. So I, yeah, I, I did four years. I finished. It was just amazing. I finished the, my last job in Africa was the World Cup final <laughs> um, in 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 Joburg. That was another. That was a ridiculous story. You got time for this story? This is another of my kind of Mate. fall in the river and come out with pockets full of fish. Fire away! I've got so, time in the world. So, the the last so my last day uh, or my last the, my last working day in Africa is the World Cup final. So I get myself out to to Soccer City in Soweto, and um, the only thing they wanted because it was a Sunday, so there was only like a ten minute bulletin in the evening, and it was like two, an hour and a half after or an hour after the World Cup final had finished. And they said, right, just we just want a live, just just a quick live hit, just talk to the camera for forty five seconds or whatever it is, just sum up the day and, and reflect on the occasion. That's fine. So. I don't know whether one of my colleagues had been kind or whether ITV Sport just decided to be kind, but there was a woman who was the producer at ITV Sport, and I was walking around the media compound at the venue before, way before the match. She came out and said, Martin, yeah, said, are you, this is your last day here, isn't it? I said, yeah, yeah, it is. And she said, look, I've got something for you. She gave me an envelope, and it was a ticket for the match. And I thought, oh, hang on a minute, this is just fantastic. And I, I you know, give her a kiss on the cheek and said, can't thank you enough. And then I got out of there before anybody could change their <laughs> mind. So I got out to, to, into, into the compound and I thought, I'm going to get my seat. And like an hour and a half before kickoff, I found my seat. And I'm thinking, it's a 90,000 seater stadium. I'm thinking it'll be the back of the back of the gods. No, 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 no. It's right behind the commentary position. Wow. This fantastic row of leather clad cushioned seats and every second seat has got a TV monitor on it so you can see replays and everything. On, I'm bang on the halfway line, right? And I'm pinching myself and I think, this can't go. I'm taking all the photos and posting them to friends. Look where I am and all that. And, uh, and, and the game's about to start, right? The seat beside me is empty, but the whole stadium's full. And, um, and the game's about to kick off. The teams are out. It's about to be the anthems. This guy comes down and sits in the seat beside me and he says... Um, I looked at him and I kind of recognise that guy, but I don't quite know where from. And he's got this blazer on, open neck sharp blazer, and there's a little piping under the collars of the blazer. You can just see like red, white, and blue piping. So he said, uh, is this your monitor? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm sharing it. My name's Martin. He said, oh, hello, Ronald. <laughs> Hang on a minute. So, <laughs> so I, I'd never, I mean, he wasn't, he hadn't been a manager in the UK. I think he was a manager in Dutch club football at the time. And I kind of re- recognised him from, from his playing days. So I'm sitting in the World Cup final on the halfway line, sharing a monitor with Ronald Koeman. Unbelievable. Um, pinching myself. And do you remember, I don't know if you remember that game. It was kind of first 20 minutes, Nigel, Nigel de Jong yeah. had this incredible karate kick. Yeah. And you only uh, get a booking so for it. That, at, yeah, exactly. So I look at Koeman, right? And I say, he's off. You're playing the rest of it. You're going to struggle. Now there's a long way to go and you've got 10 men. Wait a minute, man. Let me shoot it. Turns the monitor and says, hey, it's not even a yellow. <laughs> so yeah, I'm watching, I'm watching this game with an angry, biased Ronald Koeman. And we squabbled from from the, from the twentieth minute for the rest of the how, game. But what a how was what you, an experience! How was you when Andres Iniesta scored that winner? I take it he wasn't happy. No, no, he was, he was quiet. He was quiet mm. after that. But but you know, just these life moments, Sean. I mean, just that's, that's. I still pinch myself. I didn't deserve any of this luck, but um, I'm not gonna. You're not having any of it back. <laughs> well, but no. To, to, to answer your question, so from there, anyway. So the, your original question was, did I go to Europe? Yes, I did. There was talk after that of going to. Uh, Dubai and um, I think the original plans Afghanistan and Pakistan was the kind of hot story at the time and Al-Qaeda and, and their emergence and all that and they were, they were going to open a bureau and they wanted to open a bureau in Dubai to cover that and that was basically going to be a lot of kind of sitting around in valleys in Pakistan drinking tea with various people who had different intentions mm. and working out how to get stories out of there and how to cover it 
very delicate, very tricky. And I just spent uh, kind of four years knocking around Africa, which was brilliant. But I thought I kind of fancied a bit more, be a bit closer to home, a bit more first world. Didn't really, I'm not that, I'm not, you know, I covered a bit of war, but I'm not the bravest boy. And I didn't really want another three or four years of bang, bang. And mm. um and so it turned out actually that the guy who was in Washington really quite fancied that job and, and they kind of thought he might do Europe. So there was quite an easy switch to do. So I went and became Europe correspondent and um, and Johnny Irvine went to, to Dubai and actually got you know, in a far elevated position to the one I would have had. He came, became the international correspondent and I think he's still there. Mm, nice. Were you, did that, so did that require you to be based across Europe? Were you in London? Like where would that require you to be no i lived in brussels on oh, brussels right yeah lived in brussels and lived in brussels and covered and covered europe which was it was all right it was it was the first year was the, the greek financial crisis started mm. and you know i kind of found my, i was i'm not ashamed to admit i was slightly out of my depth doing a massive major international financial story i was sitting i found myself sitting at two o'clock in the morning reading the financial times the same piece for the third time trying to kind of yeah. get to the bottom of it and also work out how we were going to make it interesting television you know where's the pictures how do you tell this story and then that that was one year which was it was interesting athens was a really interesting place there was a lot of rioting there there was a lot of kind of people felt very aggrieved as to how the eu had treated them that was grexit i don't know if you remember grexit it was before Bre that's how brexit got its name because it was greece's exit from the U eu that 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 kind of started that. But um, the second year of that was the Arab Spring. So I spent most of the second year of my time in Europe in Libya uh, covering that conflict, which was which was very different uh, and, and you know, had enormous challenges of its own. There's obviously a large human um, impact to this constant movement and um, having to be travelling around the world and living in different places in the sense that people wouldn't see, you know, and, and I'm referring to family life. You know, how, how willing, how yeah. supportive has your family got to be to, to constantly be on the move with you or to either put up with you being away all the time? Massively, massively supportive. I've got the best wife in the world. She, uh, and possibly because she doesn't really mind me not being around a lot of the time. <laughs> I was probably doing, you know, 200 nights a year on the road, something like that, two thirds of the time on the road. But, but I mean, that's not, that's not as selfish as it might sound because, for the other third of the year, I'm at home full time, mm -hmm. uh, you know, working from home. I'd be working, but, but you know, I could take the kids to school, pick them up in the afternoon, saw a lot of, saw a lot of the kids. But I mean, look, here, here's, here's a testament to my wife, who's the real hero in, in, in all of this. This is, a, this is a good story. The day we arrived in Africa properly, we, we flew over, put a lot of our stuff in a, in a container. Um, and we were, weren't going to see that for three or four months. So we, we took uh, all the stuff we really needed in suitcases. So we had 22 cases and bags and hold-alls and everything else and two kids our kids were five and three and we flew to Joburg we got out the other end and we had these trolleys and we we're trying to push them through find a port or get out of the airport we got to a flat we'd I won't bore you with the, the the ins and outs of this but we'd been kind of shafted on a deal to rent a house and we when we went over there we had nowhere to live or we, we'd managed to rent a flat on a kind of rolling lease basis but we had no proper house we had a two-bedroom flat for the four of us and so we went there and um, we got all the 20 cases up in the left and into the flat. And the, the woman who was the, the landlord came in and she said, right, just, and this is a Tuesday, right? And she said, uh, just, just to make sure, you know, you're out of here on Thursday, right? And I said, what are you talking about? She said, you're leaving on Thursday. That We've sold the flat. The flat's sold. You've got to move on Thursday. I said, well, I don't have nowhere else to go. I don't have nowhere to live. And she said, no, 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 no. You're, you're going. It's sold. It's done. You forget about it. Nothing you can do. So as I'm kind of jabbing my finger at her, my phone rings in my pocket. So I pick up the phone. Hello? 
and it was the boss, the foreign editor, and he said, listen, mate, um, there's a war going on in Israel. Israel have just gone to war with Hezbollah, and there's been a problem with the correspondent who's in there at the moment. She's got to leave pronto, so you're on an 8 o'clock flight to Jerusalem tonight. And I look around at my wife. It's now 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I look around at my wife and say, look, I'm really sorry, but I've got to go. And we're in the murder capital of the world. Mm-hmm. Joe Berg had the, you know, the highest murder rate in the world. She's got a five-year-old and a three-year-old. She's, she's homeless in 48 hours' time. And we look out the window, it's July. We look out the window and it just starts snowing, African winter. First snow in Johannesburg for 10 years. And I kind of picked her on the cheek and said, right, I'll see you in a month. Good luck with all this. So, so I, um, the fact that I can laugh about this and I haven't been kind of killed with a frying pan is, is testament to our patience. So I disappear up to this I mean, uh, the, the Israeli conflict and uh, come back three or four weeks later by which point she's the kids are in school. We've got a house. Everything's sorted out. She's got a car. She's she's dispensed with the map with the sat nav. Didn't bother with the sat nav. I've got a map so she could learn the city. I got you know come. I left a few hours after we'd arrived in Johannesburg, and I come home to find the Queen of Johannesburg running the city. Full set of friends already made. Just brilliant. So yeah, you you need you need an understanding. I'm one quarter of of my operation here. My wife and yeah. two kids are the majority, and and it's a democracy, and I frequently lose. But if you don't have a wife who's prepared to be as tolerant and as understanding and as selfless as that, then then you're going to struggle in my line of work. So it's certainly a team effort. But I suppose then, when the opportunity did the opportunity arise to come back to work in the BBC Scotland Channel, or had you already started that move back anyway? Well, I I came back to Scotland when my daughter hit high school age. I came back in twenty. 12 2013 and i kind of said to itn look i'm going to move back this is i've got i could either bring up my kids as international kids or i can or we can or, you know we stay on the road and they don't have any grounding but there's a lot to be said for that mm-hmm. or i i kind of make them citizens of somewhere and if they're going to be citizens of somewhere i'm proudly scottish mm-hmm. I'm gonna, i don't want to move back to london i don't want to do any i've never worked in london we're going home and so th- if that means thanks for everything and goodbye then uh, then then that that's that but you know it's been great but it's just something we've got to do. I've got to put something back in now to this family, having taken so much out. Uh, and they said, "No, nah, you're all right. Listen, we'll work something out." So I worked. Uh, we bought. We got a house back here, and I kind of commuted up and down to Manchester. I went down through the week and worked out of there for a few months. And then the Scottish referendum happened, so I came back and covered that. And then I just kind of hung around up here. There was a Scotland correspondent, so I wasn't covering Scotland, but I managed to to just from a base in Scotland remain somehow remain kind of relevant and on their list of correspondence they wanted to send to places and for a few years just kind of traveled from a base at home and it was it worked it was all right but but then then the bbc scotland channel set up and i've always been interested in the concept of this kind of what was always called the scottish six Mm. and i was really interested in the way that tony hall the director general lord hall decided he was going to come up with a solution that was meant to suit everybody um this kind of new channel with a with a news program an outward looking international uh, kind of, you know, world through Scottish eyes was the phrase they were using at the time. Um, uh, news program that would kind of reinvent the way that we do news. And when the opportunity came up to present that, or when the vacancy came up, I applied for that. And and um, yeah, absolutely no regrets whatsoever. It's a really exciting time. I mean, the the program is in in its infancy, mm-hmm. but I'm really proud, really proud of, of of what we're doing. How has it gone from the 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 sort of initial stages, as you see, and it's and it as in it's and and. Excuse me, it is in its infancy, but I mean, from those very starting weeks and months, let's say, till now, has it become just something you become more comfortable with? I mean, what 
Only you can answer that, I suppose. I don't even know what I'm actually asking, to be honest. So that's not really much help no, for I, you. I, no, I, I get, I get, I get the question. I mean, look, look, here's the thing, right? If 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 television news hadn't been invented, if we just invented television now and, and we were creating a product on it and creating a way of, of transmitting news on television, it wouldn't look like it does mm. at the moment. It wouldn't look like News at 10. News at 10 looks like News at 10 because it started in the 1950s mm-hmm. and it has organically and, and gradually, some would say glacially, uh, shifted with the times to become what it is, which is a slightly modern, uh, far more modern version of of. Um, of the old products, but but it's you know th- there's a lot of this is how we do it there. We have the opportunity to from a standing start reinvent how you do television news. Take a lot of what is good about News at Ten, but but oh, I'm, I'm using News at Ten. I mean all the other news programs, mm-hmm. um, but put in you know but bend the rules a little bit and 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 shake it up a little bit and make it less formal and make it more conversational. And you know I don't know if we've got the balance right. We we, we it's a bit of a petri dish. This we're kind of growing the bacteria in it, and the stuff that uh, works, we'll, we'll keep going. What you just said there, conversational—that's what really appeals to me, and that's something that I've really noticed. I just really like that conversational aspect, um, removing a lot of the formality. Sometimes within—I don't watch the news anymore um, because I think, you know what? I need a wee break for this. There is far too much happening, and there is just a lot of tension and a lot of anger and a lot of negativity. the The most important information, yeah, I I, the most important information, obviously, I, w- I will hear it. It will filter to me through social media. Somebody's going to tell me. I will see it on the news. I will, I will, I will become aware, um, and I'll look for the things I need to know. And I kind of think, right, that's that's enough. That's plenty. So I really enjoy and appreciate that conversational yeah. aspect because. There's more of an opinion slant on it as well, which I like. It's not all matter of fact. There's also perspective, which is offered, which I think can stimulate a wee bit more, what's the word, conversation, debate, or even a sort of internal debate. That's the way the whole the whole news industry, I think, is going generally. But we're really we're really kind of big on context, context and analysis. Mm-hmm. I mean, opinions kind of difficult because because broadcasters can't really give opinions. We can't certainly politically. We can't we can't push that at all. There's there are very strict regulations. The print media are completely different, obviously, but very strict regulations governing how we how we do that but context and analysis we absolutely can give you can call a story to an extent and you can you, you can project which way you think it's going to go mm-hmm. next but but rather than doing that in a stuffy way we, we definitely want to do that in a conversational way and the whole kind of we have an hour-long meeting uh every day one o'clock in the afternoon you know eight hours before we go to broadcast which is kind of nailing down the stories we want to try to to target that day and the way we want to cover them and and number one at the top of every you know when we're scrutinizing every story why should i care why should the viewer care if, if the viewer's asking why do i give a toss about this story you've got to be able to answer that and you either you know it's either the way you write the introduction to get grab their attention or the way you frame it or present it or or the people you get in to discuss it but but we we just you just can't news all too often leaves people behind people think this isn't for me and we want to create a kind of environment where if you're not a news junkie or you're not fundamentally kind of obsessed with the minutiae of every story, then then we've still got a place for you and we'll still help you. We'll still take your hand and lead you through it and help you understand it. But the real trick, and this is where it gets difficult, the balance is if you are a news junkie, we want to be for you as well. We don't want to condescend to you or patronize you. We, you can't be bored with the level of of detail we're giving. Um, so so that's that's what it's all about, is finding that kind of – that's the, the – um, 
the alchemy here is finding that balance. Mm-hmm. Some something that, that that everybody who's watching will will something that will register with everybody who's watching. We've obviously looked over your biography um, from sort of early days growing up to you know your professional progression. If you were able to to write your biography for the years to come, whether that's personally, or professionally, what, you know what what words would you would you have written down there? Uh, what what adjectives would I use? I mean, I'd, luck would probably no, no, form as discussion. No, I've barely got into my, my lucky breaks, but but how do you mean? What, so, no, what, so what I mean is, so we've covered your biography and what's happened. But if you're able to write what is to come, is what I mean. So if you're able to write what is to come in the future, you know, in terms of where you're going to be, what you're going to be doing work wise, or if if you could come up with the ideal paragraph, even you know how what would that look like? That's what I mean. Do you know, right, I'm going to say something here that you'll find probably nauseating, but I only, and, and, and ugh, I might have said this 10 years ago if you'd asked me, but I probably wouldn't have meant it. I want to be satisfied mm. and fulfilled, and I've never been. That's been. And that's been part of the kind of secret of my career progress and path. I've been, I mean, I'm ambitious, right? Mm. And, and, I'm, and I'm kind of, can be reasonably kick arse and, and, and can be quite demanding and all the rest of it. But, but, but I've never really thought, right, I've cracked it. I've, this is enough for me. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I've never settled down. And what I'm kind of looking for now, and I, I've always been scared of settling down because it means you're just kind of, you're settling for, you know, what you've got. And I've, I've always kind of wanted the next mm-hmm. thing. And at some point, because I'm almost I don't know, 50 next year, I think I want to, settle into something and, and not, not pipe and slippers at all, but just see that as a long-term project. Mm-hmm. I don't want what's next. I want to work on this and I want to make it better. And I want to go home at the end of the week and, and enjoy the rest of my life without torturing myself about, about you know, every waking minute thinking what's happening next. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I cracked that one quite a while back um, in terms of knowing that fulfillment and, and contentment were the, the things to aspire to most. I cracked it in terms of the realization, but with the application, I wouldn't say I'm quite there because I still have my ambitions. I still have material desires, which I know are not really conducive or tantamount to that level of satisfaction and contentment. But I suppose the first step is to realize it. uh, And the second step is to to actually implement it. But I suppose realization is the, is the key. Um, But yeah, no, no, I totally get you. It completely makes sense. Yeah, Good luck with that, mate. If you, if you crack it, will you give me a shout? Because um, you know, I need to I need to work on that a lot myself, and, and anybody who lives or works around me will 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 testify to I've, that. But but that really is what yeah, it's all I've, about, isn't it? It's it's satisfaction in life. That's the that's the word. I think that's what I think when when you realise that's what your core behaviours are leading you to, whether you, whether you are aware of it or not, then it, things can make a lot more sense. Um, it'll probably take me about another thirty four years or thirty forty years before I can actually. Um, claim to have have had any have had any success with that but life is all about um no, progress listen mate you're doing just fine are you the top 20 podcasts in the uk from the radio times i well do you know what you're on the right track brother i should actually say it was the top 20 podcast you need to listen to right now and it wasn't actually just completely uk either I tell you what i'm absolutely over the moon with that because i was beside i'm beside match of the day professor brian cox and a few other really Big budget, big names. I was the only independent grassroots show that's in there, so I can't be doing too bad. Yeah. With it. Can't be doing too bad. And, 
And you deserve it, mate, because it's a good product, but also you're grafting. I mean, you're absolutely grafting. And um, you've done a lot in a short space of time. But link your work a lot. Ah, magic, mate. Much appreciated coming from somebody as um, as well-respected as yourself. It does mean a lot. And I have to thank you so much for giving your time. You've been very, very generous. And I will actually say that to anybody who won't have seen behind the scenes, you've been very helpful, um, very a very good communicator on all this. So I really, really appreciate it. And uh, I'm sure we'll we'll need to we'll all. need to follow up with another one. Just get your lucky stories because if um, if the World Cup I mean, ones, I've got, million, go by... I've got a million things. That... Exactly, exactly. As I said at the start of this, that I'm kicking my own backside now because um, there are a million things I could have told you about, and I've I've told you all the crap ones. I wanged on for five minutes about the World Cup final and left out a whole load of proper stuff. But yeah, no, I'm happy to come on any time you want. Me. Magic, perfect. And when this lockdown is over, we'll get a coffee and a bit of chat as well. Definitely. Definitely. Let's do that. Brilliant. Thanks very much. And thanks, everybody, for listening. If you have made it this far, be back again with more lockdown Patterson. Stay safe, stay in the house, and I'll see you soon. And I said, listen, I've travelled every road in this here land. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Across the deserts, bare man. I breathe the mountain air, man. I've travelled, I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. I've been to Reno, Chicago, Fargo, Minnesota, Buffalo, Toronto, Winslow, Sarasota, Wichita, Tulsa, Ottawa, Oklahoma, Tampa, Panama, Mattawa, La Paloma, Bangor, Baltimore, Salvador, Amarillo, Tocopilla, Barranquilla, and Padilla, I'm a killer, I've been everywhere.